Hello, everyone. Welcome Hello. to another week of uh, Mad Kudu's Marketing Ops Confessions. Um, super excited to have Courtney Makara here today. Um, you know, like like many of our guests on the on the show, she's a, a marketing ops enthusiast. So one of our people. Um, you've been in the space for for well over a decade, um, and and we'll talk a bit more about her background. Um, but I love your passion for tech and platform architecture, education, community, and just making things more efficient. So first of all, just a very big welcome to you, Courtney. Thank you for sharing some of your, your valuable time. Oh, thank you for having me. I also love the name of this series, Confessions. It's like, we need to really speak truthfully here. So I was very flattered to be invited and uh, happy to be here. Awesome. And um, for everyone who's on on the call live today, um, feel free to to shoot um, any questions into the chat or use the questions tab. We'll we'll pepper those in throughout. Um, but one thing I thought would be a, an interesting place to start is is just your background. And you know, you you've worked in house at at companies like you know Expedia, Marketo, um, but you shifted gears and began to freelance consult um, via your current company, Mustang MarTech, which I do want to know where the name came from, but we can tackle that next. Um, tell, tell us a bit about the, like, the, the shift into consulting and why. It was a very long thought process and conversation. I really was getting encouraged from other friends that had gone on to either consulting or had gone on to really, you know, high titled roles like VPs and CMOs. And they were like, I really need you, but either I don't have the headcount to hire you or I can't afford you because I know you've got this great full-time job. Like, can you just help me nights and weekends? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm kind of busy <laughs> nights and weekends. And if I did want to work nights and weekends, it would be for my first, you know, for my real job. And it, I mean, I had this pressure for like two years and I was just like, you're crazy. I am a W-2 employee. I really pushed back a lot. And then my company that I was with IPO'd and I knew I'd wanted to hit that milestone. And after they IPO'd, I was like, okay, I'd been there four years. What is my next journey? And I did interview with some people. I started doing that very soft, you know, networking conversations and actually nothing really got me excited. And um, a friend of mine, Heather, who really was pushing me to consult. She just saw her little window of opportunity and she connected me with someone who was ready to hire me, but it, I had to quit my job. It had to be during the day uh, hours. And so I actually did a lot of like personal deep thinking about it. I paid off my car payment with a, my bonus. And so I like minimized my expenses as much as possible. I actually got a roommate um, and rented out a room in my house. Cause I was like, I gotta be able to pay my bills. I was really, really nervous. So anyone that thinks, Oh, you just put up a website and you just do it. It's not that easy. I was terrified. And anyone else that is terrified enough to think they shouldn't do it. I'm right there with you. So it really was a, a leap of faith. And I thought, well, I'll do it for six months or nine months. You know, I have this one contract and after that, I'll just go back and interview again. Right you know, I've been around long enough and the market was still hot. This was in 2019. And I thought, well, you know, I could do it for six months and then I'll interview. And then I just fell in love with it and started talking to more and more people. And I just, I kept being able to like pay my mortgage and one ro month rolled into another month, rolled into another. And here I am at like three and a half years. So. Yeah. Why do you think um, like DP, CMOs, we're, we're needing to, to find additional support for their, their operations and their, their tech setup. Um, I, that's a loaded question. That's a lot yes. of things. Definitely, you know, there's a concept of, is there a talent shortage or is right. it maybe like a talent non-appreciation? I mean, the MOPS role really is starting to drip into all the other departments of the organization. I mean, product-led growth is a thing. And so MOPS is touching engineering and MOPS always mm -hmm. touches sales. And I think... We're starting to just get a little bit more clout and credit around the business is that we're not just we're not just setting subject lines on emails like we are involved in a lot more technology. Um, so I think that's kind of where it was coming from. And then I will say my my one year anniversary of being solo was when COVID really hit. It was mm. April of 2020. I'd hit my one year. And of course, everyone was panicked and people were getting laid off. But business for me really did take off. I got a lot more inquiries because you know, headcount was down, but they could hire me for, 
you know, two days a week or one day a week or just for like a little project that would be like a six month, you know, nurture project. And then they didn't have to worry about the the constant overhead of a full-time employee. Yeah. I think the concept of, um, different types of, of marketing operations, people, and how maybe the, the company or the marketing leadership views or values that role is really interesting, right? Like you often hear like, oh, we need somebody to like click send on emails or mm-hmm. set up campaigns or be our, our Marketo admin. Um, and then on the other hand, it's, it's bigger and um, more impactful work where you're thinking about the data strategy and, and you know, helping with budgeting decisions and what's working and what's not. Um, wh- where do you see, um, you know, where do you see marketing ops going with that in mind? You know, I really do think it's like the best department to be in. You know, of course, I'm a little bit biased. I think there's all the sorts of conversations about, you know, who's going to be the the next big CMO that came from a MOPS background? You know, what CEO is going to be a former MOPS person? And I'm definitely seeing some of those titles, you know, get higher and higher. There's senior directors of marketing operations and technology and really getting involved in I think the engineering side of the business, again, I, I mentioned product-led growth, you know, that that three-letter acronym that's very popular now mm-hmm. and seeing people's behaviors inside tools and MOPS people, people that are, you know, attracted to MOPS or tend to enjoy it and succeed in those roles are kind of already naturally minded to think about those things. And of course, we're all thinking about sales and retention and how we can find the right data to help the business get more sales and retain the customers that they have. Yeah. Well, I think that there's probably a lot of people that are are in this profession that are have probably considered, you know, doing it nights and weekends on the side and in anticipation of potentially going solo. So to lean in on that a bit more, like what what um what are the pros and cons? How did how did you weigh those? Um any any thoughts that went through your head that that could shed some light and maybe even give a framework for how other people should be thinking about it? It is such an interesting million dollar question. So knowing that this session was coming, I actually was someone reached out to me cold on LinkedIn saying, hey, I see you're you're talking about consulting versus in-house and I'm currently, you know, straddling that line. What do you recommend? Which one's mm-hmm. better? And I have to just tell people there's no right answer. They are both valuable and great tools. If someone had been consulting, you know, their whole career and had never been in-house, I'd be like, oh, you need to experience that. Like until you want yeah, to better at consulting. Absolutely. Yeah. Own your entire instance and know it so intimately, like, and have to be the spokesperson. I mean, you'll be getting lunch in the cafeteria and everyone knows you as like the Marketo girl or the HubSpot guy, or, you know, that sure. is a unique experience. And there's a lot of pressure and responsibility there. On the alternative, if you've only been in-house, Um, it's great. It's a great experience, but then you've never consulted. There's been so much that I have learned in the last two and a half years about, I think the things I have learned is, um, being more efficient and I think working a little bit faster, there's a little bit more of a sense of urgency as a consultant, um, and finding answers and getting them. I think when you're in-house, depending on the business, I mean, even business that are fast and furious, you're only focused on your one company. And when I'm juggling three or four clients and they all have different deadlines and they all have different CMOs with different requests, um, I think the efficiency thing really does come in. And I think I've learned skills now consulting that will really benefit me if and when I ever do go back in-house, which never say never. People always ask me, you know, how long I'm going to do it for. And I just say, I take it like three months at a time. So... (laughs) All right. All right. Yeah. I was going to ask you, do you ever, do you ever have the itch to go back in-house? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I definitely, you know, there's some, yeah, it depends on the relationships. I mean, I think still that's it at the end of the day too. It's the tech is great. And I love, you know, certain platforms that I really get a kick out of building, but it's really the relationships and the people. And so, yeah, there's definitely some clients where when it's over, I'm like, I'm sad. I'm not going to get to talk to you anymore. Can we still zoom and, you know, catch up once a month and see how things are going? So there is something that is kind of, you know, romantic about having your team and your coworkers and they do, you know, sales kickoffs and 
lunch mm -hmm. and learns. I don't really have that. And actually before COVID, it was the Christmas parties, the holiday parties. I was really <laughs> bummed. I didn't have any uh, big fancy, you know, especially the the Bay Area, Silicon Valley holiday parties. I was up yeah. here in Portland. I went out to dinner with some friends and I'm like, this is not the same. <laughs> yeah. The, the virtual eggnog just doesn't hit the same. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm not quite as jealous because of COVID, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I imagine that you also get, you're, you're learning a lot. You're in the, the, you know, cutting edge or you're seeing the trends happen. You're getting exposure and, and opportunities to work with companies that are thinking about their, their go-to-market strategies in different ways. You mentioned PLG, um, you know, perhaps you're getting exposure to tools and technologies and, and the, you know, how those, those talk to each other within a, a marketing stack that you wouldn't have if, if you were in-house, right? So, um, you know, I, I would imagine that that's probably a, a big plus um, given your yeah. around the Yeah, platform. it's nice that, you know, even currently I have one really big enterprise client, you know, they've got, I don't know, thousands and thousands of employees. And every time I'm in a Zoom, I don't know who's in EMEA and who's in APAC and, you know, really big. And then my other client is like a four person marketing team. And it, right. it, you know, seeing both sides is really interesting. One can work really slow, but has almost unlimited funds and can really do if we can dream it, we can build it finance, you know, because they have the financial support, but the other side can move so much faster. Um, so I, I do enjoy kind of seeing the two sides of the coin that way. And they both are, you know, different levels of maturity, too. And so they definitely have different needs for their MOPS organization. How have you found those those clients and how have you built that network? You know, I I I hate to say I don't advertise because I do podcasts like this and things like that. There's always, you know, a little bit of a, a selfish background of wanting to get my name out there, but it's really word of mouth. And I try to give out free advice as much as I can because I know people have offered me free advice a ton. Um, you know, I had to do a really quick deep dive in visible last year. I hadn't been a visible expert, but a client that I already had was like, well, you're a Marketo person. Can you help us fix it? And I reached out to like three or four people that knew it better than me. So I think what goes around comes around. So I think it's just word of mouth and supporting people. And we are very lucky right now in our market that it is a hot market and there it seems to be enough work to go around. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so speaking of that and, and a lot of work and, and you mentioned, you know, CMOs, VPs are like, hey, I need a little bit of help here. I've got a full time or I don't have the resources or the headcount. Um, if you put yourself in the shoes of those those in-house decision makers, how should they be considering or, or deciding whether they should be hiring a full time person, bringing in a consultant like yourself, maybe thinking about an agency? You know, how should how should we be thinking about that. Oh man, this is <laughs> this is advice right for you, Laura, right? Because you guys yeah, are kind of in, that, question. <laughs> in that transitional phase. There's so many variables. Um, I think obviously budget for headcount and also budget for your campaigns, you know, what type of money are people spending on like paid ads and things like that? How big is your sales team? How long is your sales cycle? I think that, you know, we don't want to just think about getting leads to sales, but like how long is sales taking to talk through all of those? And do they have the resources and support they need on, on once the opportunity is opened, you know, and sales engineers. So I think kind of thinking about what are the like 30, 60, 90 days of what we need to get fixed for the business to, to make that next number, you know, to, to keep the lights on if it's a really small scrappy startup. And, you know, sometimes if you do just have 90 days bringing in a consultant and maybe dumping a little bit of money into it. And that way it's just done and fixed and you have a foundation is good. But if you are going to be running like longer campaigns and it's a lot more about, you know, awareness and branding and kind of getting yourself into the category of the space, you know, that might be more of a internal headcount role, like someone that's really involved with the creative and the content and, you know, getting the product fit, right. That kind of thing. So straddling that line of even a product marketing manager with demand gen, I think is probably more, more appropriate to be internal. Yeah, for sure. Um, when we, when we chatted and in, in prep for, for this conversation, when you first made the move into consulting, um, it was a tough decision, right. And, um, you know, we, we talked a bit about imposter syndrome and marketing operations and the change that that function has had and how it's growing and 
in, you know, the spotlight is on, on that function right now, it seems. Um, tell us a bit about how you struggled through that and, and where that came from. And, you know, the assumption here is, is you're not alone, right? A, a lot of people might be feeling the same way. So yeah, I love the term imposter syndrome. I remember learning it and, you know, it might not be like the hip new term anymore because I feel like I learned it in probably 2015 or 2016, but I think it's still super relevant. And I even had someone just ask me last month in January, well, how did you get over imposter syndrome? And I'm like, oh, it's not, it's not over. It's still there. You know, certain conversations come up and you're just like, oh crap, now what, what do I do? But I think the way I have dealt with it or are currently dealing with it is just again these conversations and the the tide that raises all ships i've talked to so many other people who have been so open and transparent with their own imposter syndrome and i'm like oh that person has it i mean i talked to a woman jules on my podcast who is a phd in marketing and has been a marketo champion and on stages at adobe conferences and she mentioned imposter syndrome and i was like her and it was just so nice and it made me feel so much more comfortable talking to her about my issues. And so if if I can do that for someone else, what Jules has done for me, um, it was really, really helpful. And I think, you know, I think with age helps a little bit, age and experience and realizing uh, you, it's okay if you don't know, it's being open to asking the questions and doing the research and putting your neck out there on the line and just being like, hey, can you explain that to me? Can you break it down into some other terms? Because we'll get there eventually. I think we're, you know, been in moms long enough that I know I can learn it. I just need it to be put in the right language for my brain to understand it. And then we'll get there. Yeah. The examples you gave are, are women. Do, do you mm. think that this plagues only women? Do men? I don't think so. I think, you know, and I, I think men didn't have a term for it before either. Um, but I think now that they hear us kind of speaking up about it and, you know, supporting each other and talking about it, I think they had a different way. I think when we have imposter syndrome, maybe the stereotype is that we tend to like shrink back a little bit more and not say, I don't know, and just sit there and try and be quiet and be like, well, maybe if I don't say anything in this meeting, no one will find out. And maybe men were a little bit more comfortable with it, but I think I think it's across all genders. I'd be curious if anyone in the audience, um, you know, agrees or disagrees that it's okay to not know and, you know, admit that you have to go and figure something out. Yeah. What do you think? Have you experienced it on both sides? I I think so. Yeah, and I think that there it's it's a controversial topic right there's some you know schools of thought that it, it doesn't exist um I, I believe that there is confidence in um experience as you mentioned and you know knowing that there there are biases inherently part of us male or female um one that always comes to mind and in, in you know, maybe in the tech space, but specifically in recruiting is, is you hear about women that are going to apply for a job um, if and only if they check, you know, nine out of 10 of the requirements, whereas a male may, may, um, may apply when they check off only one or two. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that data point's interesting. Uh, I, it's more, using that more as an illustrative point, not that, that there's a, a bigger problem there. Yeah, and it is interesting that MOPS is really becoming quite technical, but it does feel like a very female-dominated space, I think, because it's been under that marketing umbrella. And, you know, even if you go back to people graduating out of college, I think marketing tends to be more females, and they go into a marketing department, which was much more creative and, like, graphic, you know, either yeah. subjective things, you know, content writing, graphic design, that kind of thing. And then some of us, obviously, I was one of them, I was told to, like, write a a webinar topic at some job where I was doing demand gen. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to come up with a name of a webinar. And I just panicked. And I was like, can't I just go and clean up like the duplicates and unsubscribes instead? I just really wanted something very black and white. Um, and so I think so that's do you see the MOPS profession at risk for, um, for imposter syndrome or, or insert whatever, um, you know, adjective in there. But do you think that that is something that we're going to see more of in MOPS or, or is it 
it doesn't matter what function we're talking about. I don't think it matters what function. I think, yeah, I believe it's probably across. And I think it's even, you know, in other fields outside tech as well. Yeah. Well, we'll put a pin in that one. I think there's, there's, we could probably do a whole session on that. Oh man, um, I agree. We'll, we'll grab a bunch of different people and, you know, ask all their different opinions on imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. But I imagine the shift to, to consulting, right? Like it, it takes, it's a big leap, um, a big change. So it makes sense that you would, you know, question yourself, question, you know, your, your abilities being the um, sole provider, being the, yeah. the CEO of your, your business when, you know, you mentioned you got a roommate, like your finances and your livelihood is, is very much tied to the success here. And so you could question whether you might actually be successful in doing it. Yeah, there was a little bit of, you know, fake it till you make it. I mean, I would never obviously lie to anyone about work that I felt like I could do. But I also feel like it's the first five minutes of a conversation um, that the, the imposter syndrome comes up. As soon as someone starts talking to me about scoring or nurture or cookie tracking or something like that, then I'm like, I just get in the weeds and I just love to talk about it. Whether I'm talking to like a WordPress developer or an engineer in a product, like then we can kind of get a flow going and get a little you know, jive in our conversation, but it's just those first five minutes. And it's almost like going on a, you know, an awkward first date. If you yeah. can get past the first five minutes and then you can be compatible and hoping that the person on the other side is going to be open and, you know, not sit there and judge you for not knowing certain terminology or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think a big takeaway is we just need to talk about it more and be more vulnerable. Um, and, you know, carry the olive branch to the next person. You know, yes. someone comes to you and they don't know what nurture means or they happen to use the word lead incorrectly. And you're like, well, is it a lead or a contact in Salesforce? And you're like, well, is a lead a status or, you know, be yes. open and help the next person, you know, come around yes. so that, yes. you know, we don't all eat, sleep and breathe marketing operations all the time. So, yeah. being so and as a result, we build a sense of community, right? And, yeah. and community breeds trust. Trust breeds vulnerability and 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 so on. Yeah. Um, speaking of community, which I know is very um, important to you, you know, you've started a podcast. You've shared your your passion for um, and the need for more community opportunities for Mops consultants specifically. Um, you know, tell us about starting the podcast and and you know where you feel like the industry was before and and how it has gotten maybe better or worse um, over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, started it with my friend Grant. It was actually kind of his brainchild when I came independent and he was doing his own thing. And he was, let's talk to people. Like, what, when you decided to go to consulting, you can obviously do your own thing like I did, or you can join an agency. And that does give you a little bit more security of, you know, there's a sales team that's finding new clients. And then you have obviously all your, your coworkers. So you might have your holiday party experience and people to bounce ideas off of versus going solo. And what's that like? And are people doing nights and weekends and like moonlighting while they have a job? So that was really fun to talk to people and kind of figure out there are, you know, seven different ways to do this and no one way is wrong. And I even remember back in my last full-time job when I had someone on my team going out on paternity leave, um, I knew at that point I wanted to hire an individual person like as a consultant, but there was another project that we hired an agency for. So I would, you know, think both are necessary in the market. And I like to help people kind of debate, you know, what is the right fit for it's your personal, you know, experience too. What is your home life like? What is your health insurance, you know, like um, speaking with another friend who wanted to go solo, she's like, oh, well, my husband's in the military. And so they had health insurance, you know, okay. wasn't really a concern. So it gave her a little bit more confidence to, to go independent and not go to an agency and someone else really wanted the W2 security side. So an agency is the right fit for them. Um, so yeah, that podcast has been wonderful. And it, you know, if anyone has listened in the past or seen on Spotify, we are in a little bit of a lull right now. Um, you know, it'll be back at some point. Grant and I do have some other ideas um, about just how to bring people together and, you know, share different pieces of technology that might help consultants. And actually, I just learned one today. I have my, you know, personal computer and then I have a client laptop and I had two mice and two keyboards and two monitors. And I found a, a, someone recommended a technology called Synergy where now I have one mouse and it can go between the two 
laptops if we're on wow. the same Wi-Fi network, which just blew my mind. It was the best thing that I set up this morning. So if anyone out there is working on a client laptop, multiple client laptops, check out the Synergy app. I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's like to, to your point earlier, if we don't tell other people how to solve these problems, you know, we're all, you know, we're doing a disservice of the function. What other tech do you need or use every day in order to manage your, your business? I have a few that I love. And, you know, anytime someone reaches out, I'm like, here's my list, Calendly or some sort of, you know, calendar booking tool. So you can just tell someone here's, here's when I'm available rather than, you know, having to manually go back and forth and dealing with time zones. So Calendly for sure. Um, I also have a Zoom. I have a paid Zoom account so I can just do unlimited meetings and that's integrated into my calendar. I chose to set up a website and have a domain. So I have my business email address. Um, and I did that with Wix.com, a very simple WYSIWYG editor. Um, but some people still use their personal email address and use Gmail. I just you know, wanted to keep them separate, but for calendaring reasons. And that's pretty much it on my side. It's pretty simple. On the finance side and like people mm -hmm. that might be intimidated by having to manage. Yeah, uh, it is intimidating. <laughs> and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a CPA or accountant, but I, you know, I did, there's business insurance um, that is not hundred percent required by all my clients, but some have required it in which I have chosen to get some business insurance. Um, I do use FreshBooks, which is kind of like a new modern scaled down version of QuickBooks, but it's pretty manager, pretty small. Um, I do see questions coming in about hiring a bookkeeper. I have done my own invoicing um, because it is pretty small because it is just me. I can only, you know, work on so many clients at a time. Um, I do it myself, but I do have a, my CPA that is doing my taxes is specializes in small businesses in the state of Oregon specifically. Um, so I did luck out with that. So he's helped me. Well, he's asked me, well, how do you estimate your revenue for the year so that we can make estimated tax payments? And I'm like, I have no idea what my revenue is, especially that first year. I had no idea what my revenue was going to be. So, you know, being in contact with him once a quarter and kind of tracking revenue coming in, setting aside, you know, you can't get an invoice paid from a client and just think all this money is mine because about half of it is not going to be yours for long and planning for that. How many clients do you have at a time or, or are you managing? It, it fluctuates. It depends on the need. Um, I kind of tend to talk to people about how many days a week, you know, that they'll need me for the work. Um, because it used to be a lot of like five or 10 hour a week requests, but that kind of messed up my days of the week. If you think about it, like an eight hour workday. So um, right now I really have kind of one, that enterprise client is a pretty much a flagship. That's, you know, two and a half days a week, but kind of will trickle into three and a lot of big projects. And it's a long-term contract that'll be for like at least six months. Um, and then I have a couple that are actually clients from 2021 that have, trickled over into 2022. They weren't quite ready to rely on their internal full-time people. So they really just have me on like a backup retainer just to help keep the lights on. Someone they can email with questions, you know, hey, this sync broke or how do we set up this crazy smart list? So I'm really like about one day a week with them to kind of support their internal people. Yeah, and I, I, I like Looking question. at the questions, mine are mm -hmm. really more on the the day or week about, you know, bandwidth and how much is expected or project-based and not by the hour. Cause I figure something could take me 27 hours and you are not going to want to pay for that, but I want to get it done. I want the client to be happy with the end result, or I could do something in 30 minutes that could completely change your business. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to charge someone for 30 minutes, but if it's really, you know, important for your company, then we'll figure out what that solution is and what the value of it is. Yeah. Um, I want to jump to this question that, that just came in as well in, in terms of, you know, you've got a podcast, you're, you're, you're here with us today. You've done other speaking opportunities. <clears throat> How do you recommend other people get tapped into these, these opportunities? I love this question. I absolutely love this question. And I say, speak up, reach mm -hmm. out to, you know, Laura and all the, uh, there's like 15 moms podcasts out there right now. I have a list. I keep track in my phone. So when I go on long drives and just reach out and introduce yourself and you know, the, the worst thing they can say is, oh, we're not ready or, oh, we have too many people. But you know, 
if you have a little bit of a story to tell about a problem that you had at work or a cool campaign that you built, every, you know, we want to hear from everyone. You know, maybe we don't need to hear from people like me that have 10 years of Mops experience. I want to hear from the people that are new in the industry, in the field. And, you know, what is, what is helping you? What is hurting you? What decisions have you made in, you know, landing and changing jobs? So don't be shy. I know it can be scary, but maybe that imposter syndrome is getting you, but just reach out and introduce yourself. Most of these podcasts have a website and have someone managing it in the background. And I'm sure they would be thrilled to have a list of names coming to them instead of them having, because if you think about it as a sales, like they're having to do outbound to go and find speakers. Mm -hmm. I think they would love inbound. <laughs> yeah. And I'll add to that, <clears throat> excuse me, that it, the people that, that run these are, are going to help you build a story. Um, if you're like, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know. I don't have this like great, amazing win that I can share, but I, you know, can share how I've learned things or, you know, how we do things at the current company you're at, you can, you can build a story out of that. And, and, you know, as, as you're seeing here, it, it should be more of like a dialogue and um, yeah, just, just do the first one and, and get your feet wet. <laughs> For sure. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, okay. One word that describes the when I met you and, and in our conversation was efficient mm -hmm. and just finding efficiencies throughout your life. Um, I think you've given a few examples here, um, you know, even in your MBA that that you got just like connecting the dots between things, I would say, I know I haven't known you for a very long time, Courtney, but like superpower of yours. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, where do you recommend people who, whether they're getting just started in, in marketing operations, whether they're just getting started in becoming a consultant or, you know, have been doing it for years, if there were just a few efficiencies that you've found in your work, work-life balance, whatever, um, that, that you could not live without. Um, and, and oh, interesting. I, I'm curious because, you know, efficiency as a new mom is a big thing and <laughs> you know, how do I do more with less time? Um, but well, I, I wish I had some really, you know, <laughs> super modern, sexy answer. I mean, I know there's a ton of digital tools for this, like Evernote and OneNote and things. I am a whiteboard and pen and paper person. Um, so I think, you know, making lists and sorting and grouping things. But I also think efficiency is prioritizing what really doesn't need to get done. And I'm not a mom, but I have a lot of, you know, colleagues and friends that are working moms. And I think any even working parent, I will say, there's a pressure to do a lot of the things. And you kind of just have to pick the most important ones. And um, on for me on the mop side, I might tend to get a little bit too in the weeds of like, I need to fix every data value and the report has to be perfect. And we can't launch it until it's right, but sometimes it needs to get out the door and maybe it's 95% perfect and that's okay. Um, because so you maybe more of like a, a mindset shift mm -hmm. of, I like to call it like not, you know, being a window fixer, like especially in startups, there's more things to do than you have time for. And because you know how to do it, like the data cleaning or, you know, we have 10 leads that don't have a lead source. I need to go in and fix those because my OCD mind won't let right. me look at the report with, you know, a null value. Right. Um, but not being a window fixer in MOPS is probably the most important and probably the hardest to do because, you know, to connect this back to imposter syndrome, you're going to do the things that you're more confident doing, oh, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, some of that, you know, put your headphones in. Yep. And you guys be my favorite thing when I first got started. I was like, you know what? Today's been a, a lot of meetings and a rough day and, you know, a lot of interaction, a lot of, you know, strategic thinking. I'm going to listen to my music and clean an Excel. Exactly. And clean some <laughs> imports. Yeah. Oh, I mean, procrastinating. I constantly find that the things I procrastinate on are the things that I'm like, not quite sure what I'm going to do or don't have the confidence, but yeah, definitely. Sometimes you just got to dive in and again, being okay. Things are not hundred percent. And yeah, for me, efficiency is, you know, I, I love what I do. I love the platforms that I've learned, but I also love the rest of my life, the personal life. So it's like work-life balance. I do not want to work until 10 o'clock at night and I don't want to work 
weekends. You know, I want to be able to travel and enjoy my hobby and things like that. So you got to be efficient so that, you know, at the end of the day, you can log off the computer and go do the rest of your life, which actually segues to my company name. Oh, yes. You were asking. So I, uh, my red horses on the side, I've was the, the dorky 12 year old kid in junior high that wanted to take riding lessons. And here I am, I'm still taking riding lessons as an adult. I love it. Yeah, I love that. I feel like that that might be a a fun thing to do with clients. You know, maybe. Oh man, that would be wonderful. Yeah. If any client or even prospect wants to come to the Portland, Oregon area, let me know, and I will find horseback riding for us. (laughs) I would love to. I used to love horseback riding as a kid, but I love. So I love this concept of like the mindset shift and and focusing on the most impactful things. And it's like we need a, I don't know, a framework in order to identify in the MOPS world, what are those items that are providing more value mm-hmm. versus the ones that aren't? So you can say no to those that aren't and, and focus your you know limited time and resources on the ones that are. But then I have found that that isn't enough, just, just figuring out what to prioritize, but communicating mm-hmm. that to the rest of the organization, to, to your stakeholders, um, so that everyone's in alignment. It's, it's tough with these wonderful tools like Slack, which I love Slack, but as a mops person, and I'm sure there's other departments that probably feel the same way. I imagine like accounting might feel the same way is like, you can get bombarded. Oh, just a quick question. Oh, just a quick question. Just a quick question. And that can make it really hard to be efficient if you Mm -hmm. have a project or you're trying to work on. So, you know, figuring out, is it office hours or what is the way that your audience or stakeholders are going to get questions? You know, you could also document everything. I know documentation is a big hot thing, but are people actually going to go read it? And you Mm -hmm. can have to weigh the pros and cons with building like an intranet site versus, you know, maybe that's where you have, you know, a consultant or a freelancer or someone that is doing your office hours and is available for those questions. Like how can you eliminate the noise. And you mentioned my MBA program. It's where I studied a little bit, a very little bit of supply chain management. And they talked about like the Toyota production system and how they just eliminated waste where they were moving things in the factory to be with like within an arm's reach. And literally like if you had to, you know, get on your tippy toes to reach something, they were like, no, 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 that doesn't work. Inefficient. (laughs) Completely ergonomic and as fast as possible. And obviously they're doing it, you know, to make money, but yeah, we should just eliminate whatever is as wasteful as possible. You know, we have a lot of meetings with Zoom now too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's always, I think maybe as a benefit as a consultant too, or I can kind of go to clients and be like, do you need me in that meeting? Like, if you need me, I want to be there. I want to hear all the conversations, but let's look around the Zoom and see, you know, how many people are in this meeting and how expensive is this meeting in a time way. Yeah, um, calculating the expense of a meeting is sometimes super eye-opening. And, and we've had a few folks on on the show talk about you know your point on getting so many different questions. How do you triage those? How do you document and then prioritize? But it's a balance and it's hard because you you know you don't want to not answer questions, right? right. You're you're at at service to your customers who are the internal team. Exactly. But at the same time, if you if you're answering questions all day long, you're not working on the bigger picture items. Um, and and I've found you know since the pandemic is is my first kind of path into like working fully remote. I'm, mm. I'm very used to being on the sales floor and working, you know, in person um, with at least a handful of people. And, and sometimes it is easier to just do the quick questions. But now that we're scheduling a Zoom meeting to ask those questions, are we taking up more time to, to right. get an answer? You know, and, and so I think a lot of people are still figuring out the right balance. And um, I, I completely agree with you with the love-hate um, relationship with Slack. Um, I, I found turning it off during certain parts of my day is is proven to help me be more productive. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I, I have one of these that, that people can get a hold of me on if there's an emergency. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because you kind of have to train your you know, you said your internal customers, your coworkers, Mm -hmm. um, some people might love zoom and some people might like Slack, but they all kind of have to get on the same page. And, you know, I'm sure they also have some coworker who's pinging them 18 times a day and just Mm kind of having a little empathy across the aisle for what they're going through. And 
maybe not ghosting them on Slack and being like, oh, they're so annoying. They keep slacking me, but kind of just communicating like, okay, look, I want to help you, but I can help you like what Tuesday mornings or Friday afternoons or that kind of thing. Yeah. I love that concept of office hours. Um, really great. And I actually suggest don't even make it an hour. Cause then it's like, you know, you could sit there on an empty office hour zoom with no one showing up for 55 minutes. And then someone shows up at the very end. I'm like 15 minutes. Like if you have a question, show up, no questions today. Great. <laughs> nice. See efficient. Like any, any opportunity. It out. Love that. Um, so let's talk a, a bit about some of the trends that you're seeing uh, across your clients and where, where they're struggling, um, which then in turn probably means you're spending more time there in mm -hmm. your, your consulting practice. Um, I know you mentioned PLG, so I, I definitely want to hear, you know, what, what you're hearing there, but maybe start just like broad strokes. Like what are you getting asked to do most and where are people struggling? Yeah. Right? Attribution is still around a lot. Um, oh, a lovely attribution. Yep. Lovely attribution, which, I mean, we said this is confession. So I feel like I have to be really honest and say, I hate attribution. <laughs> Why? Tell us Am more. I allowed to say that? I feel like I'm going to be, you know, block listed from all of, uh, the, the industry. I just feel like it can be, you know, you, it can be messed with, it can be tweaked, it can be manipulated to get what you want, you know, depending on where you are in the organization, if mm -hmm. you want it to be first touch, you know, you can adjust your model to make it be first touch. So I think there is value in it. So don't quote me to say that like, you know, Courtney hates it and doesn't see it's important. It's important, but I think we spend too much time on it. I think if we've got, again, these expensive meetings with five or six people, you know, sitting there and you can talk about it in circles for so long. I think you can, I think yeah. we need to pick something and set it and let it run for like a quarter and then go back and like, look at the, you know, open opportunities and close opportunities and sources and campaigns. And then if you want to change it, change it for the next quarter, but to change it every week. And I think we can really get kind of sucked into the minutia of it when really mops should be supporting campaign ops and demand gen. And that's such a like behind the scenes thing. So yeah, soapbox on attribution. I hope like, how should we be using it, right? Like to make decisions on budget allocation, what you know, channels are performing better than others in different stages within the buyer journey, and yeah. and the reality is, it's not something that that you're going to bring to maybe the executive level, but it's definitely not something that's going to make it on a board slide, right? Um, and and so helping people understand where that fits in their decision making process is is probably key. Yeah, that's definitely still around a lot. And I think, you know, multi-product lifecycle is kind of always around. There's a lot of, you know, acquisitions and things happening in the market right now. And, you know, having two products or two sales teams in one organization and yeah. how different things, you know, MQL, which I do think is still a, a valid acronym, even if it's not trendy anymore because of ABM. But I think that can be tricky um, and figuring out how to make that scalable because you start with two products and you start with three products and then, you know, your ideal customer might qualify for two of them, but they're an outbound target for one. And kind of that mess of code, I think, is still around a lot and doesn't quite have a really easy solution. Yeah. Um, and then PLG. It's, like it's, a, it's a challenge for demand gen, right? Like, how do you know who to reach out to with what message? But, um, you know, you think about the different funnels of the different product lines like that. Also, anybody who has gone through or going through like an acquisition or a merger of companies or multiple companies, right? Like the private equity um, world where it's, it's bringing a lot of brands together. Um, you know, that that's certainly my experience and and um, background. And, and it's tough, especially when you're trying to help sales know what they should be pitching and you don't want to lose an opportunity with a prospect because you're talking about contract management when they really only care about billing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It is a tough one. And it really, I mean, and that's the shift from the marketing conversation of like brand awareness and trust and, you know, case studies and stuff to like the salespeople are selling a product. Like they have, you yeah. know, basically a line item that they're going to charge for. Yeah. Um, it's a good reminder. Mops is, Mops should be involved in all of those decisions. Yeah. They're not just the ones that are receiving the order to, send email X on day Y with Y with Z list, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The best companies I think that we're seeing, especially in our customer base are the ones that are, you know, bringing 
you know, those operational conversations and those foundational. Which uh, then even brings me to, is it MOPS or is it RevOps, right? Because yeah, yeah. The, the MOPS person might own your, you know, your marketing platform. Um, but what about your CRM or your Salesforce platform? Because they got to talk to each other and figure out what point is the opportunity open and how long is it closed? Like, I think the how you find the difference of those two and yeah. does it matter? I think what what it is called, what probably matters more is is what are the um, what is the objective of that yeah. function? Exactly. And getting people invited early enough in the in the building. So it's not at the end of the day. They're like, oh, by the way. We have this other platform that needs to ingest this data. I think the the rev ops kind of revolution of you know marketing and sales ops to there is just genius. All these things that come up that are trendy are kind of common sense that someone finally put a name on it. Like, oh, revenue operations. You sales and marketing together is revenue? Who would have thought? It's great. Yes, yes. Um, all right, product-led growth. You mentioned like you've got companies that are trying to figure that out. Um, what are, what are they struggling with? Um, I think even defining it is step one. Um, and I didn't even realize at the time I'd worked at a company that was doing PLG. I didn't know it was an acronym, again, common sense. What did so you call I, it? What did, well, how did you refer to it? I was working at SurveyMonkey at the time and oh. SurveyMonkey had a, you know, a free yeah. version yeah. and then an enterprise version. Yeah. So we kind of called it from self-serve, which is you can pay with your credit card online to sales assisted. So we had the acronym SS and SA. And, you know, what were the things inside the tool once you're logged in to your SurveyMonkey right. account? You know, is there ads inside the account, features that you have to unlock, but you have to pay to unlock, you know, some advanced features and, you know, Zoom and DocuSign. There's a lot of these tools that are similar, even like Calendly, like I have. So I think part of it is like, well, who owns it? Because if it's inside the product, that's product and engineering, but then to be able to track attribution again there's the the a word coming in of like oh we had a bunch of people upgrade to you know a platinum account or a premium account where did they come from why did they upgrade and how long are they gonna stay on this enterprise level so i thought it was really interesting and like i said i didn't even know what it was until after i left um and i started hearing the acronym and started following some people on linkedin that are talking about it and how to measure it and i think it's so interesting and i I love when companies do start thinking about their product that way. And I even think about our marketing platforms, our automation platforms yeah. and that we're in all the time. And, oh, interesting, you know, is Adobe or, you know, Salesforce or HubSpot, are they measuring like how many logins every day or every week or how many programs I've built or how many emails I've sent? And they can use those cues or clues to understand, is this person going to more likely to renew? If they haven't sent an email in six months, they might not be renewing their you know, marketing automation. So I think that's really interesting, but it's so, there's so much data and I don't think yeah. people quite know yet what to, what to measure because what yeah. is going to be the propensity yeah. model. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And, and the fact that a lot of that data may not even be accessible to the people that could use it so well, right. Yeah. On the sales and marketing side. And, um, yeah, I mean to to plug Mad Kudu, right? Like it, it's it's a, a great use case for for what we do, and and um, the the self serve versus sales assisted, and and who should sales be, you know, spending their their precious time on um, is all good. But I think it's I think we'll see a lot of um, you know a lot of companies trying to figure out how it can fit into their go to market strategy, mm -hmm. and and not likely not be the only way they're going to market, right? I think there's a lot of companies that start that way, right? Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, like SurveyMonkey or, or Calendly or, or, you know, Notion, mm -hmm. you, know, um, you know, Figma, all these companies that, you know, just kind of got a viral product effect, um, figuring out how to add salespeople. Right. And then the reverse is happening as well. You've got, you know, sales first, enterprise, traditional, um, go to market, that are now figuring out how they can, you know, use a, a free trial or, right. um, you know, unlocking some, you know, initial product features to entice people to come through the, the funnel. Right. And figuring out, you know, is that a journey that they want to go on? Does it, does it really make sense for their business? Or is it just like, everyone's doing it, we need a free trial, or we need a, you know, a free version of it with limited features? Well, it could be so limited that no one's ever going to really use it. Some software really is 
meant to be enterprise software. So I think it's is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And and you mentioned a bit about maturity, right? And mm -hmm. um, you know, the different you know, different companies have a, a different setup in terms of their technology, in terms of their teams, but how do you advise clients or or educate on where a company should be? Oh boy. Um, let's see. I mean, it depends probably on the, I think the sales team is really where you look at, you know, if they're deciding, you know, what have they decided is the appropriate number of like AEs to have, or do they have BDRs? And that kind of, I think, trickles down to the rest of the organization and the influence of, um, are they just, are the salespeople just like, send me any lead possible? Like we just want volume, send us anything, or are they starting to get picky about, you know, demographic fit and behavior fit and things like that. And then that can kind of guide the marketing team and then the MOPS team on what can they do to help the sales team prioritize? Are, they, are we going to go and mine the self-serve leads and, you know, feed them over to, to sales assisted or is it scoring or is it paid ads? You know, are we ready to really up the, the budget on the paid ad side and just open the floodgates to try and get people in? Um, yeah. Is that kind of what you were looking for? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's interesting to look like what's the size of the sales team, size of the company. Um, and then like having that be kind of a guiding force for how, how and what type of marketing operational support you will need. Yeah. I think the size of the sales team, but also I think the length of the sales cycle and like mm -hmm. the average order value. I mean, these are questions that you know, early in my marketing and MOPS career, I didn't even know what that meant. And I was like, what do you mean I, I need to know average? Order? I mean, are they selling a ton of $20,000 accounts or are they just selling one or two $10 million accounts in a year? That's really going to change the type of work that, you know, the MOPS and the demand gen team are doing. And you're trying to land a couple of really big sharks, then you really do need to understand, you know, ABM models and, you know, the group consensus and stuff like that could be a lot slower, but you're not going to need to come up with a bunch of different, you know, campaign triggers and, you know, maybe scoring MQLs might not be as relevant because mm -hmm. you, there's only so many people out there in the market that are going to buy the product. So I think that really would help with the type of projects yeah. that would benefit the team and the company. Yeah. Cause it's really not a one size fits all. No, right? definitely and, not. And so figuring out what, what your emotions are going to be figuring out what sales cares about first is critical in order to, you know, then come with a, a roadmap for, for marketing operations. Yeah. I know. I always feel like sales yeah. is, is the customer, right? Yeah. It's always got to be. All work for sales. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> we all work for sales. Well, you know, I know we're coming up on time. I, there's probably six other topics that, um, you know, I would love to dive in with you. So, so we may have to have you back and, and talk a bit more as, as you continue to grow your consulting business. But I think you touched on um, so many things that uh, a lot of our, our audience and community here cares about. I'm sure there are more questions that people have. And as they listen to this, this recording, how can people reach out to you if, if they want to learn more about you, about Mustang Martech, um, about your podcast? Yeah, I am on LinkedIn, of course. And so feel free to message me there. I do have mustangmartech.com and I have a little contact Courtney form on there. So you can fill that out. And I'm in a bunch of Slack communities, you know, relating to MOPS. So if you, if you see my name, please don't hesitate to reach out. I would love to hear from you. Um, happy to talk about all these, you know, acronyms or even the, the consulting full-time, you know, debate. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on. I love meeting new people in the space. So thank you very much. Thank you. And yeah, just a, a breadth of um, knowledge and, and lots of education. So um, really, really happy to have you as, as part of our community, Courtney. Um, so with that, I will end the end the event today um thank you everyone who joined live and for those that are listening um on on, on a recording and we'll see you next week at the next mad kudu marketing ops confessions thank you